Hey, welcome to the Black Health Podcast. I'm Paula, and I'm here with Khadija, Matt, and Mercy. What's up, hey, y'all? Hey. So, how's everybody tonight? Um, how have things been going? I'm doing pretty well. I can't complain. Yeah, I like the weather. You like this weather? It's better than, I mean, not today, but these past few weeks have been better. What's the weather been in DC? It was warm the last couple of days. It's actually it was actually dropped back down to the 40s today, but I think it was what high 60s. I last see you had Atlanta days. weather. Yeah. No. That's not horrible. I feel <laughs> was like. Was it like 50s? Like... <laughs> I think it was like low we 60s. Had like, we had like a couple nice days. We did, but now it's getting cold again. Yeah. I don't have time for it. I swear, this is like the coldest winter I've ever experienced in Atlanta. Really? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you agree, Marcy? cold as fuck. We had snow in December. And it didn't like melt like the next day immediately. Like it stuck around. That's real. Lingered. <laughs> this is my first real winter, I feel like. The other day, it was like a wind chill of negative three. What is that? Cold. <laughs> Very cold. <laughs> it was like eight degrees and windy it was terrible i don't i don't know how people choose this when there are so many other options i guess i chose it right that's what i say <laughs> <laughs> i guess i did choose it i didn't know what i was but getting some myself people into love that weather and those are the people i don't understand yeah no I'm what not. people sorry i missed people who love cold weather it's weird to me oh, okay i was gonna say something but never mind say it i was gonna say <laughs> Say, say it. I mean, white people. <laughs> I mean, I don't, yeah. Well, they like warm weather too. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> any uh, any updates since the last time we were all together on the mic? Um, we well, have been traveling. Yes, I went to Cuba for nine days. And had the most amazing experience. Mm -hmm. Just being disconnected for those like nine days, no Wi-Fi, no like no cell phones, nobody calling you, texting you, none of that. And just really spending time like immersed in the culture. Like I was drinking rum every day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, just eating like great food, talking to people. I wish I I wish I brushed up on my Spanish before mm-hmm. I went because I didn't get to communicate as much as I wanted to. But just learning about like Cuba and their culture and they're just such like a prideful people and they really love their country. And, you know, you get all that propaganda here in the States and stuff. Right. But I didn't see any of that. They love Fidel Castro. Like there are statues of that man everywhere. They have a song written about him after he died to just talk about how sad they were that he died. Their healthcare system is bombed. They have free healthcare, free education through PhD. That's crazy. They start sex ed in pre K. I was like, can I move here? That's they so just cool, like though. teach them about their bodies. Their bodies, yeah. And they said ever since they doing that, incidents of like child molestation wow. kind of went down because kids were aware that 
certain touching wasn't appropriate. And then they said just with the sex ed throughout that all that time, they have low incidence of rape, sexual assault. They have no violent crimes really because um, no one's allowed to have guns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> another mass shooting yesterday here in the States. So I've decided that I'm going to move to Cuba, build okay. me a little house, <laughs> probably in Trinidad. Coming with you? Yes. So, you know, everybody take a trip to Cuba while you can. Mm-hmm. Y'all know Trump trying to shut that down. But go while you can. It's a beautiful like, country. Um, not having Wi-Fi like helped clear your mind a yes. lot. Yeah, I felt like that before when I traveled. Oh yeah, because you were in some weird Cambodia. kind of like peace that comes over yes. you. Yes, <laughs> like yeah. no, I wasn't anxious. Just only time I pulled out my phone was to take a picture. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like you can live in the moment. It's 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 interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just so overstimulated here. Once yeah, it, I think the internet really causes us to we're constantly checking in on other people, other things, on the news. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no time to process anything, and I think being disconnected yeah. puts you in the moment, allows you allows you space to process what's happening around you. It's actually really beautiful. <clears throat> yeah, it was amazing. I spent a lot of time just staring out of windows, sitting <laughs> around, just staring at stuff. Walking around, I mean, just it was great. You I must, wasn't worried about my puffing, phone. Puffing some of those Cuban cigars. Oh, I had some of those. <laughs> I had um, Cohibas. Cohibas. That's what they said. Fidel smoked. Okay. And uh, what about the conferences? Um, oh yeah. So I traveled with a group of students. And it was a study abroad experience. So we had like a lot of educational activities. And we had a couple of really interesting discussions with um, about race mm. in Cuba. And how I found it really interesting that a lot of the social issues that we see with racism in America were also the exact same in Cuba. So one of the most prominent things that really stuck out to me was um, the lady was telling us, I'm sorry, I don't need to call her the lady. Because <laughs> she's actually like super popping. Um, so when you get a chance, go to AfroCubaWeb.com and Google Gisela. AfroCubaWeb? Yes. Gisela, G-I-S-E-L-A, Arandia, A-R-A-N-D-I-A. She's lit. So anyway, had this really interesting conversation about race. And she was just saying how in Cuba, you know, you have the white Cubans and you have the black Cubans. Even though at the end of the day, they say that they are all just Cuban. There is still obviously the white Cubans and the black Cubans. And so, if a black Cuban man has a house, he has a good job, and he has money, he can marry a white Cuban, and her family won't have any issue with it, Mm -hmm. because he has a house, and he has a car, and he has all of these other things that basically make him wealthy. 
Yeah. Um, Higher SES. Exactly. And so she said, like, one of the jokes that they have there is, like, this white girl comes home to her mom and she's like, Mom, I've met, you know, the love of my life. He has a house. He has money. He has status. But he's black. And her mom said, oh, honey, he's not black. Mm. Wow. So, right. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but she was saying that it's also a sign of status for the black man when he gets a little money, nice job, little car, little house, he goes and gets him a white woman. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yes. I can't, I can't say that I've ever heard that narrative. It, sounds, it does not sound familiar to any, anything I've ever heard. Really? Don't know. You. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but um, so I thought that was just really interesting how our cultures are completely different. I mean, we don't even really have real interaction because of the blockade. So the fact that that is still something that happens in that community, that culture. Yeah. And this like topic has been in the headlines a little bit more with um, like Amara La Negra and like her, this Mm -hmm. conversation that she's helped start around like Afro Latinas and it just highlights how anti-blackness is global and colorism Mm -hmm. is global. It is. Deaf everywhere. Did y'all see the uh, the interview that Charlemagne? Yes. Did? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't see yeah. all of it. I didn't either. Um, I saw enough to turn it off though. Yeah. Like, Charlemagne. But I was trying to explain to this woman that I work with. She was like, she was like, oh, I like Charlemagne the God. I was like, I cannot. I can't. No, I can't. And then I was telling her about the Marla Negra. Um, situation and I was like you know just imagine a dark skinned man who has bleached his skin <laughs> looking you in your face telling you that colorism is not real Charlemagne bleached his skin yeah Charlemagne where have you been you haven't seen how his face looks all weird now <laughs> he claims I think I heard like he claims he had like dark well he did he did kind of have some discoloration on his face like he had some patches near his nose that were like a lot darker than the rest of his skin so he claims like he was doing um, his skin, whatever, going to different. a dermatologist or whatever, and lightened up those patches. But he's like noticeably a few shades lighter than he used to be. Hmm. His whole face looks oh. different to me. His whole face looks what? Different. I know he does I'm look like, different. Like, just because you lightened your better. face, that that wouldn't do all of that. Like it's kind of like a face. It like, it's like he tries to look prettier. Yeah, it's like he gets his eyebrows manicured now. Yeah. Wait, when you get your eyebrows done, it's called a manicure? For men, yeah. Hmm, all right. Manscaping or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so the other thing I, that we can update the audience on are different conferences that we've participated in um, in the past few months. I know we just recently had one. At Morehouse. Yeah, we um, did. So we um, participated in uh, the Leadership Health Summit at Morehouse College. 
Um, they got a bunch of student leaders from the college in their first week of school. Uh, to really talk about health, I think the main issue of the day was around the high rates of <clears throat> um, sexually transmitted infections on the campus. Um, but we led a session on mental health, um, specifically to, to black men and what that what that means. Um, we talked a lot about health disparities, how you know black men are overrepresented in um, vulnerable populations, so being homeless, uh, being in jail, and how you know the trauma from those experiences can lead to uh, mental health issues. Uh, we talked about um, ways to identify mental health. We talked about symptoms. Um, but I think what was really cool is we did a peer-to-peer kind of demonstration where we had um, two young men come up and talk about and uh, role play. Um, for example, um, one, one thing was like they had suicide ideation um, and we did, we kind of trained them how to talk to somebody um, about that, um, which requires a lot of empathy. Um, to, it requires you to know your resources, how you can access them. Um, so I, we got a lot of really great feedback. I said it was a really great event. Um, so we hope to, to work with the, with the, young, the young men at Morehouse more. <clears throat> yeah, shout out like and I was going to say shout out shout out to Dr. Uh, Ayana Abrams uh, she always holds us down and she did the session with us as well um, yeah you know I always see Ayana when I go out and we'll be like on the opposite sides of like the bar like hey girl <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah I was going to ask um, do y'all think that like if you had had a um, like some training in peer-to-peer support maybe when you were an undergrad or, or at another point in your life, like, do you feel like you might have been, something like what y'all did at Morehouse, would that have been helpful when you've gone through different situations with, like, friends that you know of oh, who yeah. might be struggling? For sure. With depression, anxiety, yeah. yeah. I feel like I, I could still use it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And Seriously. I think that's what Ayana was saying. She said, you know, empathy training is, is, some, is like a service. It's something, it's, there are classes that people can take um, to learn how to mm-hmm. be... Um, better at you know working with people who are struggling with with a multitude of illnesses um, mm-hmm. yeah and I, I think that I would definitely benefit from from a, a course or something like that um, yeah. yeah and I liked how she explained it where she was saying you know to, to have show empathy to someone doesn't mean you have to offer them a solution mm-hmm. or anything like you can just simply say that sucks I'm sorry you have to go through that. But I think a lot of people get caught up in trying to find the right thing to say and right. wanting to offer support and help. But sometimes really just listening to that person is what they need and connecting them to resources if it is at an extreme. Yeah. yeah. It, was, okay. it was really cool. I mean, I think they had a really good, a lot of really good questions. I think this is this is a discussion that, um, you know, young men need to have. Um, but I think especially on that campus where, what what we were hearing was just a lot of hyper masculinity, a lot of people not talking about issues they're going through, a lot of substance abuse potentially. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a conversation Risky we behaviors. hope to right, 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 right. Risky sexual behaviors. All of that. 
Um, and I, I don't, it's probably not just Morehouse. I think it's just young yeah. men at this age group, so. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. All right, y'all. Well, let's get into the episode. So today's podcast is a little different. Um, we don't have a guest this time. It's just going to be the Black Health team. And what we want to do is recap some top public health issues that really affected black people in 2017. Um, We'll talk about big news or studies that broke in 2017 and just get into the weeds about how all these different issues tie back to racism Um, and hopefully have some discussion about what we can do about it as a community to overcome these issues in the future. Then we'll wrap up the episode by discussing some things to keep an eye out for in 2018, uh, like policies on the horizon or health trends that we should be thinking about as advocates for health in the black space. So, Marcy, if you want to go first. Yes. <laughs> you look excited. I am. This has been a very interesting topic for me. Um... It kind of started in grad school and women's health policy. But um, basically the issue of black maternal health. I know you've probably all heard some things, especially um, more recently with Serena Williams talking about her, the issue that happened with her at the hospital. Uh, For those who don't know, Serena had a beautiful baby girl and while she was recovering in the hospital from her C-section, she started having shortness of breath. She has a history of pulmonary embolism. So her mind, that's immediately where her mind went as soon as she was having right. trouble breathing. Because she knew. She knew. Because, well, that's a whole other tangent. As I said, we really need to know our bodies. But anyway. But she already knew it was wrong. So she's telling the nurse, like, hey... This is what's going on. I need a CT and a heparin drip, which is like a blood thinner. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, you know, your pain meds just probably have you confused. You don't know what you're Basically talking about. Basically calling her crazy. Basically. Serena Williams. <laughs> I think if anyone would know what was happening with her body, it would be Serena Williams. But anyway. <laughs> so... They try to, like, you know, put it off, say, oh, we're going to do, just let you lay there for a second. And she kept saying, no, this is what I need. So then they say, oh, okay, well, we'll run, um, do, like, an ultrasound or something. Didn't do, nothing came in the ultrasound. She's like, I told y'all I need a CT and a heparin drip. Sure enough, they did the CT scan. And what did they find in her lungs? Mm -hmm. Blood clots. And guess what they gave her? A heparin drip. And so, luckily, Serena was in a position to know what was happening to her. But a lot of women don't have that luxury or that opportunity to fully understand the health complications that they go through as black women. And another story that I found really interesting I actually read an article about it on NPR. Um, Her name is Shalon Irving. She was an epidemiologist at the CDC. Um, 
focus, her main focus was trying to understand how structural inequality, trauma, and violence affected people's health. Specifically focus on how childhood experience affect health later on in their life. Okay. So doing great work in the world of like health disparities and all that. Um, she got pregnant and died seven days wow. after she gave birth from high blood pressure. Um, she had a complicated pregnancy, had a preterm birth, went home, had a C-section, went home, had been saying, hey, you know, my blood pressure's been elevated. Her doctors just kind of wrote it off. This, oh, I'm sorry, this also happened in Atlanta, obviously, because hmm. she worked at CBS, Yeah. yeah. Um, so doctors just kind of write it off, like, oh, you're probably just not taking your pain medicine correctly. <laughs> so your okay. blood pressure, that's why your blood pressure's been elevated she dies because her doctors just kind of dismissed her which is a thing that happens a lot with black women and doctors we get dismissed right. we don't our pain isn't taken seriously just a plethora of things and just to give this some perspective of black maternal health so black mothers in the u.s die three to four times the rate of white mothers. And a great thing they pointed out in the article in NPR, she broke it down and she says 22 black women are 22% more likely to die from heart disease than white women. 71% more likely to die from cervical cancer. But 200 and 43% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. Wow. That's a crime. 243%? Mm-hmm. And this number is only getting larger, but mm-hmm. not because more black women are dying, because less white women are dying. Mm-hmm. And this is occurring in black women regardless of socioeconomic status and education level. The 223 percent? 243%. 243%. It's regardless of income and educational level. Yes. Yeah, that's really um, scary for me as as a black woman thinking about that and just the age that I'm at and what I want to do with my future knowing that that's something you know something like that could be in my future and i'm gonna really have to be on top of my health yeah in a different way than someone else a white person white woman Mm -hmm. when i decide to have children yeah and that's i think that's part of the reason why i got so interested in this topic because i'll be 30 this year (laughs) and a lot of my girlfriends are having babies Mm -hmm. and you know so I was just reading up on it and just learning about all the issues that black women have. And it also find research also finds that issues that white women have in their forties with childbirth and pregnancy 
black women have in their 30s. Like physical issues. Yes. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Like trouble conceiving? and Conceiving, carrying it to term. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, because. It's that uh, stress. It's yes. Stress. Yeah. I was going to ask yes. that. Is it, is it because, so is this just part of like the larger picture that black women have poor health outcomes than white women mm-hmm. in general? Is this a symptom of that? Or is there like a mechanism that's working? Um, I know we talked we talked about kind of doctors not believing in the things that their black patients say, or not believing that mm-hmm. they or believing that they can tolerate more pain, or just not giving them medication mm-hmm. for certain things. Um, but is there anything that's happening um, other than that socially that that causes specifically this health outcome to be uh, such such a disparity? It's everything. Yeah. So it's the stress of racism mm-hmm. and sexism because women. Um, Actually, okay, can I add something right there? Yeah. Like the way that I think my personal opinion, obviously I'm not, I don't know, whatever. I'm not some kind of super expert or whatever, but I do really think it might be tied to stress because mm-hmm. stress like hardens your arteries. It really affects like blood flow and that's kind of the... Um, the physiological mechanism that stress like stress Mm -hmm. from racism actually impacts your health outcomes and then like the women like women's reproductive organs uh your womb uterus all like are very vascular Mm -hmm. organs and so if you are affected by stress in a way that hardens your arteries and you have a lot of you know arteries i guess like I don't know. Do you have arteries in your uterus? I don't know. Whatever. But (laughs) you have a lot of, like, blood flow in that area. Like, that's going to be a highly impacted area by through this specific mechanism. And I did actually, I'm not just making this up. Like, I did read about this, too. Like, Mm -hmm. that it might really be, like, stress from racism might really be affecting... Well, you might really see it in maternal mortality Mm -hmm. rates and infant mortality rates and these issues about... um, you know, bringing that child to term and everything, yeah. it might really show up um, in a specific area of health because of the way the body is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's yeah. definitely stress. Um, they say that's one of the main contributors to black women not caring to term. Uh, 49% of black women are more likely to um, deliver prematurely because of stress that is directly linked to racism. Um, But that's just, so it's just layers to it. So it's like you have the stress of racism that plays a role in it. And then you have the systematic racism. So black women don't have the same access to prenatal care. Mm -hmm. If a woman is on Medicaid, she is dropped postpartum. So now she gets no postpartum care. Even when you have women who have access, the quality they get from their physicians Mm -hmm. is less than... Um, and then just being black and all the, um, how we're disproportionately affected by disease compounds issues that we already have. So if you're a diabetic, which you're going to be more likely because you're African American Mm -hmm. or having high blood pressure, that just compounds all these other issues. So it's just so many layers that all play a role into it. And I think that is part of the reason why. Because this, I mean, it's literally everything working against you. Mm-hmm. So, black women out there who are having babies, 
y'all real. Yeah. Because the odds are stacked against us. High. 243%. So, what would you... What do we think? <laughs> what, what, like, what, do, what do black women need to be thinking about uh, um, when they you know, are, are planning to have a child to avoid being a part of this yes. statistic? Number one, obviously, try to find you a healthcare provider that looks like you. I have a black woman, OBGYN, been going to her since I was 16, and she's amazing. Mm-hmm. She's always been very aware of the issues that are unique to black women and so she's takes that extra care that I don't think a lot of people would get if I just went to a white doctor um so that's very important I told her that she can't retire until I have a kid so (laughs) I'm just like I don't know what you're gonna do girl but you gotta thug it out um and it's really important too for women to have birth plans and postpartum mm-hmm. plans mm-hmm. because not women not only die in childbirth but they also find that we're dying postpartum within the first month mm-hmm. after delivering a child yeah mercy um, another uh recent story um is erica garner and right. she had yeah. just had a baby a few mm-hmm. months ago um and she had a heart attack and was in a coma yeah. so um yeah that's definitely related to maternal mortality and mm-hmm. just the sh- the overall the stress, stress that she was probably experiencing right in yeah. her fight for and justice for her father mm-hmm. compounded by all the emotions you feel after you have a child yeah and you know. she did have like health problems like uh, asthma mm-hmm. and did she have diabetes I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure actually, but um, yeah, like you said, it's layers to it. You're already at higher risk for other health complications, mm-hmm. and then under all this additional stress from being pregnant and being black, yeah. and people aren't listening to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I've been telling all my girlfriends, get you a birth plan, and get you a postpartum plan sit with your doctor and really just work it out tell them what you don't want you can tell them down to the type of music you want them playing Mm -hmm. what type of conversations are allowed in your delivery room Mm -hmm. you know just all of that matters just trying to make sure that you have the delivery that you want because we also know that a lot of c-sessions are performed unnecessarily and they do other things during childbirth that they shouldn't do, but they do it to make their jobs easier. Right. So some women, I don't know if you've heard, but some women get cut Yeah. when they're pushing. They're actually not supposed to do that. It should rip naturally. Mm-hmm. But because they want to make their jobs easier. Right. So, but you can put that in your birth plan. Don't cut me. I don't want a C-section all that so yeah that you know trying to stay on top of your health as much as you can which i know for us it's difficult because we're always worried about other people no one's really worried about us so check on your girlfriends 
Mm-hmm. It takes a village. <laughs> it really takes a village. And, and I know we started talking about like, okay, if you're planning to have a baby, but it made me think about women who aren't planning to have a, a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, um, my own personal beliefs, like this issue underscores the need for um, like abortion, access to abortion yeah. and abortion rights and how by limiting access to abortion or um, getting rid of it completely, what we're really doing in today's climate and in, you know, today's, you know, with these kind of numbers that black women are at such a high risk of dying in childbirth, um, we're putting black women at risk, like more black women at risk to die Mm -hmm. by, you know, kind of setting up policies and systems where they have to give birth. Um, And I almost want to, you know, see the numbers on that of like, what does maternal mortality look like for someone for an unplanned pregnancy versus a planned pregnancy? Mm -hmm. Um, And combining some of that with like, you know, racial disparities as well. Like, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's some data out there about that. Um, Mm -hmm. I can imagine that, you know, a, a black woman who has an unplanned pregnancy, I think a big portion of that population would be maybe from lower SES um, mm-hmm. and they probably have higher maternal mortality rates and those are the people that we need to be looking out for and protecting and those people deserve the right to speak for themselves about mm-hmm. whether or not they want to have a baby and they need to be able to easily access abortion services right. I saw this quote that's like um, abortion is health care um, mm-hmm. and I, I stand behind that 100% yeah yeah but there are a lot. You- oh, sorry, Mercy. <laughs> oh no, you can you can go ahead. I was uh, gonna go down the hall to the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say there there are several um, organizations that are doing the like research and policy advocacy for Black women's reproductive justice. So, like Black Women's Health Imperative mm. and Black Mamas Matter mm. Alliance. Um, there's a growing number of organizations are really fighting for this topic so that's that's a positive thing that is a positive exactly yeah always doing the work you just i just don't know how we fix the problem dismantle racism burn it to the (laughs) ground burn it down well i think um Khadija, if you would like to go next. I, I think all of the... Actually, all of our topics are so very interconnected. Yeah, but, yeah. I was going to say yeah. my topic's pretty connected to this in terms of, like, the focus on black women. But um, so as most of our listeners, I'm sure, have already heard about, um, there's um, a movement that's really caught... Um, a lot of energy right now, um, the Me Too movement, um, which is around um, sexual violence and really uplifting voices of um, women who experience sexual assault. Um, And even though the um, Me Too movement itself was started by a black woman, so Tarana Burke. And historically, black women have um, been leading the charge um, against sexual violence 
so um, Anita Hill and um, Reese Taylor um, and a lot of literature um, there like this topic has been brought up um, and even like recently um, black women have been talking about R. Kelly <laughs> and yes. how problematic he is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so but even um, with that leadership that black women have had, um, I our experiences are still um, invisible in a lot of ways, um, and our voices are not as highlighted in these movements and in these conversations. Um, and the reality is that black women and black girls, and I think that's really important that when we talk about sexual violence, that we recognize that girls experience this too. Um, but yeah, as black women and girls, we dispro- are disproportionately impacted by sexual violence in a lot of different ways. Um, so a few examples that I found um, A 2010 CDC survey showed that black women are more likely to have experienced an attempted or completed rape in their lifetime than white women. Mm. Uh, Lower income women experience higher rates of sexual violence. And as we know, black women are more likely to live in poverty. So that directly connects to black women. Um, black women and other minority women were disproportionately represented in professions that um, would put us at, or that would make us more vulnerable to harassment and abuse. So, like service jobs, domestic work, sex work. Mm. Um, there's a lot of statistics, y'all. Um, yeah, there are um, in terms of reporting sexual assault and rape there are numerous barriers that black women experience so from our relationship to law enforcement and our concerns about getting our black men in trouble to um just societally black women being seen as more sexually deviant uh we're statistically less likely to report um formally and and informally uh than white women Black women experience more symptoms of PTSD following assaults than white women, and we have lower rates of both access and utilization of post-rape resources and treatments. And um, in terms of black trans women, a 2015 U.S. transgender survey showed that 53% of black respondents reported being sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Um, So black trans women are at an even higher risk um, of getting sexually abused in their lifetime. So um, even though those statistics we don't really hear um, in the conversation that's been happening around like the Me Too movement and on the surface that really seems like uh, rich white women in Hollywood, um, those are the voices that seem to be elevated. Um, These are um, like black women and just other marginalized intersections um, are really impacted by sexual violence and um, it's 
important that we um, continue to uplift those intersections of women and vulnerable women um, that have those experiences. And just like we should dismantle racism, we also should dismantle rape culture. (laughs) And all those things are interconnected, so. Um, And we also, um, I think something else that's really important that um, I think has been missing a little bit in this conversation around the Me Too movement is um, like the role that men play in this and the role Mm -hmm. that men play in dismantling this and like what can men do, what can black men do to help and sexual violence and inner partner intimate partner violence which is a whole nother i mean it's all connected but that's a whole nother conversation i could have but right. yeah <laughs> can we yeah, can we have, have a, a little bit of the conversation now homeboys so, what'd you say black men need to start calling out they rapey homeboys Yep. Can you give, can you give <laughs> us a, a definition of rapey? Matt acted like he couldn't hear me. No, I didn't hear you. Didn't can you do. can what? you give a, a definition of rapey? Yes. <clears throat> Ooh, that was a deep, a deep clear. Yes. <laughs> so, rapey <laughs> is you know the guy who tried to act all cool at the party. Getting all the girls drunk. Because mm. you're hoping one of them girls going to get so drunk, she going to sleep with you. Mm-hmm. You're rapey, bro. Why can't you only get a girl when she's drunk? So guys who use um, drugs or alcohol to try to get women to have sex with them. Drugs or alcohol. Coercion. Coercion. You know, their power a situation with a guy. At Guilt first, tripping. you think you might want to go down that road, but you change your mind. Mm-hmm. You can do that. But then he just keeps kind of, like you said, guilt tripping or just pressuring you. Well, what exactly what Aziz and Sorry was doing? Yeah. I don't know why everybody's trying to act like right. they don't know what the <laughs> hell went on. Yeah. As soon as the girl said what happened, I said, I know exactly. I know that situation too yeah. well. Yeah been there every woman was like oh yeah we already know what went down because yeah asking 50 million times are you sure you don't want to have sex (laughs) you sure you don't want to have sex you tell the guy they start kissing up on you you're like nah i'm straight five minutes later why are you back up on me again i have Mm -hmm. already said no i don't need you i'm not playing hard to get i'm not wanting you to chase me I'm giving you a hard ass no. Yeah, I think I think a big part of the issue is that um, a lot of men only validate themselves on their ability to have sex with women, mm-hmm. um, and so if you say no, I don't want to have sex with you, that doesn't always mean ever. it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't mean ever. It doesn't mean that I'm not that that person isn't attracted to you in any kind of way. Um, it just means that that person doesn't want to have sex with you at that moment. Um, right. But I think because, one, men only see themselves 
oftentimes as objects as sex and then they objectify women as objects to have sex with um a rejection of sex means a rejection of that person um which is a insecurity men need to get the fuck over <laughs> one of the many yeah yeah, that Aziz, um, Khadija and I talked a bit about that Aziz situation. Um, it's just creepy, man. I think just reading it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it was creepy. Real creepy. I don't know a, a better term to describe it. It was aggressive. It was manipulative. All of that. It was just... Yeah. yeah it was com it's common i think that's so something <laughs> like i honestly don't know like a girlfriend or like another woman who hasn't been through a similar experience at least like that story and mm -hmm. like that's like his aziza's behavior isn't unusual at all that's what I know. so many <laughs> that's how so many men act yeah. so i mean like honestly i feel like in most of my girls friend circles I would say 95% of us have shared experiences with sexual assault mm -hmm. sexual harassment sexual violence and I mean that's just who's sharing you never know who's keeping it a secret right who can't talk about it exactly mm -hmm. so yeah I think that the Z's and sorry story I was really disappointed at the response um mm -hmm that I heard towards it and I think a lot of people basically really zeroed in on how she's the um, the woman in the situation Grace said that she gave nonverbal cues so a bunch of people were like attacking that piece like what's a nonverbal cue or, or sign that you you know are, are don't want to participate people what are is so dense. but first of all she said nonverbal and verbal and if you can if you read it, it yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and like nonverbal is a thing. Like if you touch me and I move away, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like why are people all of a sudden acting like that's what I'm saying? Like, people are no. being willfully dense. And because she walked away from it, because he let her go home, basically, mm -hmm. people are like, "Whoa, okay, well it's fine. It's not a big deal because she didn't get raped or whatever." But it's like, I think her story, Grace's story, was is so important because it really. It, sh it shows you where people stand mm -hmm. and it's like one of those things that's on the margin it's, it's for not for me but for others like yeah. in a gray mm -hmm. area and um, it really adds layers to the conversations yeah. it's not just like oh this guy pulled his dick out and I didn't ask for that which that happens too yeah I mean that happens and yeah but I think a lot of more people are like oh that's oh, horrible yeah. they can easily recognize that that's yeah. horrible mm -hmm. some people yeah, but so and this one was a little bit I mean but that's see that's what date date rape is so common because mm -hmm. of exactly because of situations like that one yeah. so I don't know what everybody's trying to act brand new like they don't yeah. like a lot of people came out against her and were very and mm -hmm. are very vocal and very comfortable with being like this story is stupid yeah leave Aziz alone whatever mm -hmm. but I'm on some fuck Aziz I'm sorry <laughs> because because that situation has happened to me and I know exactly the kind of person he is mm -hmm. <laughs> from that. From that. Real. So that's just how I feel. It's real. Too real. Yeah, because I know a lot of people do say, like, it's too much gray area with rape. But it's very black and white to me. I don't really see any gray. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So and I think people just want it to be gray because they have found themselves <laughs> yeah. being, being that guy. Yeah, being rapey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it all it all falls under the umbrella and it's all like part of the impact of rape culture. Um so yeah, I agree with you, Mercy. It's hard for me to understand how people can't get that and like even with with the um story around Aziz um there's a lot of slut shaming around the girl like going to his house and like oh she Mm -hmm. should have assumed that they were gonna have sex or he wanted sex because uh she went to his house and um it's dumb yeah (laughs) it all sucks fuck rape culture Right. Burn that shit to the ground, too. So we need to have um, sex ed starting at preschool. Yes. (laughs) That would be nice. I think I was blown away. (laughs) Like I was like, what? Yeah. uh, And they're already seeing, like, results from it. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I taught sex ed at a, um, as a volunteer at a high school. Um, mm-hmm. in Georgia and one of our lessons was on, was on consent um, and misconceptions mm-hmm. around consent um, what consent looks like if a girl says yes yesterday that doesn't mean that it's a yes today um, mm-hmm. and you know, it was just really interesting to hear um, the stories or the myths that these young men have heard from older men in their lives um Mm -hmm. you know some of the things we talked about about you know getting a woman drunk if you want to have sex with her um you know that if you if a woman has decided to sleep with you like there is no such thing as rape after that um and so i i agree i mean i think it takes shifting the norms of and, and doing it very early um, and early, even earlier than high school, like I think it has to happen, in you know elementary school, middle school, um, because pre-K. yeah, because if it's about this pre K life, because they're getting the message anyway, right? And it's gonna be mm-hmm. an incorrect message. Um, and if you can find, and if you can give them a correct message, um, then you can stop a lot of stuff from happening. Hopefully, exactly. It seems so simple. Yeah, but the the but common thought is that if you talk about sex, then your kids are going to go have sex, and that's just wrong. <laughs> but they're already having sex. Yeah. Right. And risky sex. Now we got super strains of gonorrhea. <laughs> but y'all don't want to talk about sex. Yeah. That's uh, that's scary. Antibiotic resistant gonorrhea. Man, what? I don't even know what that looks like. Don't want to know. Don't need it. I'm about to be celibate. Okay. Whoa. (laughs) 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 Okay. Me too. Just ignore it. Me too. Right. Don't be acting out in front of company. A topic that's been important to me last year in 2017, just been on my mind a lot, um, is environmental racism. 
Mm. Um, we've talked about it a few times, and also uh, Black Health was featured in an article on Bustle um, hey. about food justice. We did a screening of the film Soul Food Junkies in Atlanta, um, and we were in the Bustle article. It was talking about how food justice is racial justice. Um, so definitely go check that out. And I guess I'll put a link to it in the show notes because I yes. forgot the title of the article. <laughs> um, it's like how black millennials are helping to solve something. Yeah. Okay, yep, we'll find out. <laughs> Ava. Yes, Ava DuVernay. Retweeted it. <laughs> hey, Ava girl. Yes, Ava DuVernay <laughs> acknowledged um, black health's existence Existed. with a simple retweet. And, and I feel like... Everything to me. If she saw it, you think she sent it to Oprah? She definitely texted to Oprah. She definitely sent it like, to hey, Oprah. Oprah girl. Look at these young black folks. <laughs> 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 it's like, hey, well, Oprah, I know you might be busy. But right. I know you might be in <laughs> your <laughs> garden, but. Right. Look at this, this article about food justice. These young black folks. So, um, hey, okay. Oprah girl. And hey, Beyonce. <laughs> yeah. Beyonce definitely saw it. <laughs> she definitely did. Um, but like another, another issue that that's been big in uh, like in the environmental racism realm is the Flint water crisis. And so a new study came out in 2017 about the lingering effects of the Flint water crisis, which was, um, it was a study done by a researcher from West Virginia University and one from University of Kansas. Um, and they found that fetal death rates increased by 58% wow. in Flint, uh, since the water had been switched over to the Flint river water. Flint still doesn't have clean water, right? They don't. And so, I found this article on CNN that like went through like fast facts of the Flint water crisis and it also included a timeline. So I want to kind of go through the timeline because it was really helpful for me to go through the timeline. I think that a lot of people have some kind of like cursory knowledge of like the Flint water crisis, but don't know what happened in detail. And the timeline was pretty horrible. So, um, let's see, start at the beginning, March 22nd, 2012. Genesee County announces a new pipeline is being designed to deliver water from Lake Huron to Flint. So they're building this like really super cool new pipeline. It's going to go from Lake Huron, which is fresh, clean water. And they're all excited. April 16th, 2013, the city council recommends that Flint make the switch to Flint River water. So I was kind of confused. I was like, wait, I thought we were getting water from Lake Huron. Right, like, <laughs> and so all of a sudden, and <laughs> just between these two time periods, I was like, what? So all of a sudden, so they basically decided while the new pipeline is being built, which is supposed to be completed, I think it's, I don't, yeah, it's supposed to have been completed already. But while the, it probably hasn't been because resources have been need to be diverted to fixing this right. big-ass problem. But um, while the new pipeline was being built, they said, let's save money and switch the existing water Swiss system from the Detroit River to uh, the Flint River. 
Mm-hmm. August 14th, 2014. This is a year later now. The city announces fecal bacteria has been detected in the water supply, prompting a boil water advisory for a neighborhood on the west side of Flint. The city boosts the amount of chlorine in the water and flushes the system. The advisory is lifted on August 20th. Uh, A month later, in September, Flint issues another boil water advisory after a positive test for total coliform bacteria. The presence of this type of bacteria is a warning sign that E. coli or other disease-causing organisms may be contaminating the water. Mm. City officials tell residents they will flush the pipes and add more chlorine to the water. After four days, residents are told they can safely resume drinking water from the tap. All this chlorine, they about to be drinking pool water. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, who, who wants to be drinking? What? Yeah, like, why is that the option? Chlorine. More right. chlorine. Right. <laughs> October 1st, 2014, Michigan Department of Environmental Quality issues a governor's briefing paper outlining possible causes for the contamination issues. Um, Among the problems are leaking valves and aging cast iron pipes susceptible to a buildup of bacteria. Uh, They conclude flushing the system and increasing chlorine in the water (laughs) will limit the number of boil water advisories in the future. So this, I think, is an important point. Um, So a big problem are the pipes. Mm -hmm. Um, We can kind of come back to that later. Uh, General Motors plant stops using the city's water due to concerns about high level of chlorines corroding engine parts. Um, They strike a deal with a neighboring township to purchase water from Lake Huron. Um, Let's see, January 2nd, 2015. So let's see, like, so this timeline started. Just <laughs> go back. It started in 2012. We are here in 2015, the top of 2015. The city warns residents the water contains byproducts of disinfectants that may cause health issues, including an increased risk for cancer. Wow. Over time. Hmm. The water is deemed safe for the general population, but the elderly and parents of young children are cautioned to consult with their doctors. So we're talking about more than maternal child health. Now, everybody needs to be thinking about, will I get cancer from right. this? Um, another, okay, this one was, this one really blew my mind. January 12th, 2015, uh, the DWSD, which is the Detroit, I think it's like Detroit water, it's the Detroit water system, offers to reconnect Flint with Lake Huron water, waiving a $4 million fee to restore the service. Wow. City officials decline. What? What? Damn. <laughs> this is some bullshit. City officials decline, citing concerns water rates could go up more than $12 million each year, even with the reconnection fee waiver. Later that month, residents tote jugs of discolored water to a community forum. The Detroit Free Press reports children are developing rashes and suffering from mysterious illnesses. So, you know, I saw a lot of people talking about the city was just trying to save money and this is why this is such an outrage, blah, blah, blah. And that's true. Like, that is exactly what happened. They were thinking about money, not caring about their residents. And this is where we are 
Um, let me keep. Um. S- yeah. Um, February 26, 2015, the EPA notifies the MDEQ it has detected dangerous levels of lead in the water at the home of Flint resident Lee Ann Walters. Walters is a mother of four. She first contacted the EPA with concerns about dark sediment in her tap water, possibly making her children sick. Testing revealed that her water had 104 parts per billion of lead nearly seven times greater than the EPA limit of 15 parts per billion. Jeez. Uh, A month later, Walter follows up with the EPA after another test indicates the lead level in her water is 397 parts per billion. March 23rd, 2015, Flint City Council members vote seven to one to stop using river water and to reconnect with Detroit. However, State-appointed emergency manager Jerry Ambrose overrules the vote, calling it incomprehensible, claiming that costs would skyrocket and that water from Detroit is no safer than water from Flint. Fuck you, Jerry Ambrose. Yeah, I was like, who the fuck is Jerry Ambrose? I hadn't heard this name before, and I'm like, oh, I'm about to find him. Um... June 5th, another important time point, June 5th, 2015, a group of clergymen and activists file a lawsuit against the city, charging that the river water is a health risk. The city attorney later says the lawsuit is baseless. The case is dismissed in September. Mm. (sighs) So just more finding high levels of lead in the water. EPA is... um, not yeah epa is saying this is not good there's high levels of lead in this water um and let's see september 8th 2015 a team from virginia tech conducted a water quality study that um, showed 40 percent of flint homes have elevated lead levels Okay, September 11th, 2015, after concluding that Flint water is 19 times more corrosive than Detroit water, so um, that was a lie, Right. (laughs) uh, Virginia Tech recommends the state declare that the water is not safe for drinking or cooking. The river water is corroding old pipes and lead is leaching into the water, according to the study. So if the water is corroding pipes, you probably shouldn't bathe with it either. No. Okay. Uh, September 24th, 2015, a research team led by Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, a pediatrician at Hurley Medical Center, releases a study revealing the number of children with elevated lead levels in their blood nearly doubled after the city switched its water source. Uh-huh. Um, in neighborhoods with the most severe contamination problems, testing showed lead levels tripled. Mm. Okay, let's see. I'm trying to get to the point where they... Okay, October 16th. The city switches back to Detroit water. Uh, okay. Great news. Right. Residents so- are cautioned that it will take weeks for the system to be properly flushed out and there may be lingering issues. Uh, lingering. Of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> December, 15th, December 14th, 2015. So... Uh, what is that? October, November, 
two months <laughs> after. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> months more. Two months after they switch back to Detroit water, Flint declares a state of emergency. <sighs> okay. And this is it's so much stuff on this timeline. And we still in 2015. Early 2016, President Obama declares a state of emergency in the city. And they allocate $5 million in aid. And then the rest of the, like, the time points um, are lawsuits being filed. Um, the EPA criticizes the state's slow response to the crisis um, and expresses concerns about the construction of the new pipeline to Lake Huron. Um, attorneys, including some with the NAACP, file a class action lawsuit against some people, the governor, Governor Snyder of Michigan. What about that um, punk-ass Jerry Ambrose? Yeah, I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> Fuck <Definitely>. Jerry Ambrose. <laughs> Start a campaign. Flint residents <laughs> file a class action lawsuit against the EPA. Six current and former state workers are charged as the criminal investigation continues. November 10th, 2016, the state of Michigan and city of Flint are ordered to, de- to deliver bottled water to homes where the government hasn't checked to ensure that filters are working properly. Uh, some officials get charged with felonies. Okay, January 24th, 2017, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality says that lead levels in the city's water tested below the federal limit in a recent six-month study. So, making some progress, progress that is a good sign but let's just remember we started in 2012 right. um people started complaining in 2015 and it's 2017 where we are now seeing um let levels go down to a more acceptable level. i guess level um, but they're still lit there is one um and then the study comes out that says that fetal death rates have increased by 58%. 58% since the switch. So over half of the babies in play are dying. I don't think that's what that means. Not quite. <laughs> No, it says fetal death rates increase. So, like, there were a certain number of deaths one year, and then the next oh. year, it was 58% more. But, I mean, it's wrong still, with it, people. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's still bad. It's still horrible. I mean, we got a president that makes up shit, so. <laughs> I can be a little, so I can be a little off. <laughs> Fight lies with lies. Exactly. I'm with it. But, um... And it's like, so it's not even like fetal death rates. Uh, ingesting lead has all types of negative health consequences. So even people like young babies at the time that this was happening, who, you know, may have been drinking water, bathing in water, like mm-hmm. they might have cognitive disabilities, impairments, mm-hmm. all types of things can go, can go wrong, like with your, with your health. Right. from ingesting uh, high concentrations of lead, especially at an early age. So there's a whole 
generation of people in this city that we just don't know. Like, we'll see in 15 years, 20 years Mm -hmm. down the line, like, who these people become and what happens to them. But this is, like, irreversible damage. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the the thing is, like, this isn't and hasn't just gone on in Flint, Michigan. Like, communities of color are disproportionately, like, located in, like, in areas where they're, they have higher lead exposure. It's a report by the Michigan Civil Rights Commission called The Flint Water Crisis, Systemic Racism Through the Lens of Flint. And something that they really went into and discussed was um, like the systematic exclusion of black people from leadership roles in political organizations and how that meant that people in, in Flint, from Flint, from this community did not really have the power to advocate for themselves to make decisions regarding, um, you know, their environment, that these right. decisions that had a huge impact on their health. And we see, like, from the timeline, people were trying to speak up. There's this woman who's like, hey, there's some shit in my water and my children are sick. Uh, let me call the EPA. So it's like, it's not even yeah. that people were stupid or didn't try or didn't notice. Like, people were definitely noticing and there were activists out there um, advocating for what, like, these people and what was going on. And so nothing was done. It's like these high levels of government who people mm-hmm. that do not live in Flint, live in other nice areas of Michigan and just kick their feet up and don't don't care at all and yeah. don't have to listen to these people. Mm-mm. And that's a, a huge problem, like, of how, um, like, systematic racism just keeps perpetuating itself. Mm-hmm. It's like black people can't, they can't, if they can't get into leadership positions, then they can't make any change. Like, mm-hmm. Exactly. You have to hope that the people that you're electing are going to fight for you. But we all know they only see green. Right, right. They didn't want to change it back over to the Detroit River. Because it was going to cost some money. An estimate of $12 million. They don't even know that. And let's, you know, let's estimate the health care cost of these people in the future. Exactly. The loss, um, even like, you know, if you just want to think like in a... I guess maybe like a more like just economic manner. Mm-hmm. Like what about the lost, the cost of like their lost productivity yeah. and stuff. Like if, if these children are now disabled or um, yeah. impaired some way, then they're not living to their full potential to mm-hmm. contribute to society mm-hmm. in that sense. But really I don't even think that's as important as to how, to how much we failed them right. and the cost of, it's going to take to provide these people health care for the rest of their lives. I'm sure it's way more than $12 million or whatever the oh yeah the money, the savings that they thought that they were doing mm-hmm. by continuing to give people this um, they horrible water. They clearly did not do a cost-benefit analysis. They did not do a cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> Where is Victoria? Yeah, but it's just about who, who, like, who like has the burden of paying for that, right? So it's mm-hmm. not going to be the city ultimately, right? It's going to be maybe the state um you know it'll be a federal federal level um right and so and then i think the city acted in their best financial interest without thinking about the human capital costs i think what you were saying earlier um and it's just it's just sad i mean i think a lot of decisions are made based on financial incentives rather than um 
the people that have put you in office, right, to mm-hmm. and have given you this responsibility and this trust to take care of them. It's also, um, I said we would talk, get back to the issue with the pipes, and that's that's due to like housing discrimination. Like there have been all these policies in place since the end of slavery um, to make sure black people can't have nice things, and so they're relegated to essentially ghettos um, mm-hmm. that have and they have substandard living conditions. And that's really what the city of Flint kind of is. Like, if you look at the history, it's like a, a place where there was white flight, um, similar to Detroit, white flight. So all like a lot of the money leaves the city and goes out to the suburbs. And the people that are there are the people that, for the most part, not everybody, but for the most part are people that couldn't leave um, due to, I guess, being lower on the socioeconomic totem pole or what have you. So... They're living in these kind of dilapidated conditions or older buildings, older houses. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when there's this corrosive water going through their pipes that are already old and susceptible to leaking Mm -hmm. and leaking lead into the water. I mean, you know, that's what happens. Like you have all these black people concentrated in this area. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And And I mean, I feel like even a few years ago in predominantly black neighborhoods go through the houses that had lead paint mm-hmm. and asbestos. Yeah, that was a problem in Detroit. Mm-hmm. That's why we see all these mesothelioma commercials now. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, I wonder yeah. what the commercial will be in 20 years. Did you drink water in Flint, Michigan? <laughs> Girl. <laughs> yes. <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you may have been exposed to and you know it's a slap in the face. Um, I don't know. I just pulled up some articles about this. Um, I don't know if y'all have heard about this, but there's like this new movement in Silicon Valley <laughs> um, to like drink raw water, so like unfiltered, okay. <laughs> um, untreated water. So you have these rich white folks in they California. Tap water. <laughs> <laughs> They have like, gentrified. So, what they water. mean about raw water? Like, where are they getting this raw <laughs> vegan non GMO water from? <laughs> Organic. Is it rainwater? Um, it's unfiltered spring water. Okay. But. Um, no, I'm not sure But, but like, like, it's just, like, a slap in the face. Like, you have these, like, poor black people in these various cities that are, like, unintentionally, unlike, Mm -hmm. willingly exposed to hazardous, like, environmental stuff. And then you have these white people in... (laughs) Right. California that are willingly subsecting themselves to this. <laughs> we gotta keep fighting. Yeah. And be on top of stuff like this. And I think if more black people do understand the concept of environmental racism and understand the history that have put us in these vulnerable positions, we will be better prepared to recognize it as it's happening in our lives and to say something about it. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think, like, continuing to be vocal about Flint and these issues. I think, like, stories like this, they're, like, a hot topic for a few weeks, and then they kind of go away, and there's something else that catches, like, the major news. Um, So I think just... I feel like you don't see Flint. Yeah, you don't. Mm -mm. Ever since 2015, like, oh, yeah. They moved on to something else. Okay. Wild card. (laughs) (laughs) Matthew. Let's talk about drugs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, the opioid epidemic was huge in 2017. Um, It's really been happening long before that. Um, I guess I, just a little background around that. Um, I'd say late in the <clears throat> say early early two thousands, late nineties, there was like a, a really big pain epidemic in the United States, and doctors really didn't know what to do about this pain epidemic, um, and started to over prescribe opioids, um, which is led by strong media push. Um, and, um, they didn't really know the effects of opioids. People got addicted. People started to overdose. Um, noticing a increase in, um, the incidence of opioids around the area. Some enterprising drug dealers started to sell synthetic drugs, um, heroin and other things like that. So the combination of those things kind of led to... Um, what we're now seeing um, last year, President Trump um, said we have a public health emergency op- opioid epidemic. Um, but when you think of the opioid epidemic, who do you who do you automatically think about? White men. White men, right? Black people. Um, you're uh, make America great again. rural west virginia white man um (laughs) and that's still the the majority of the people um white rural um poor people who are dying um from opioid related overdoses but in 2016 and 2017 there was a sharp increase um in opioid related deaths among african americans um Interestingly enough, the age group was, I think, around 50 to 64, where we saw the largest increase. Um, And the thought is that these are people who survived the opioid epidemic of the 1970s, um, who are now reemerging and trying heroin again or whatever drugs you have you. But this is this new drug is increasingly synthetic, being cut with things like fentanyl. Uh, which is a deadly drug, um, manufactured drug. Um, and so we've seen a lot of overdoses among African-Americans uh, in 2016, 2017 as well. Um, in fact, it's been the sharpest increase in overdoses among any um, race. And that happened in 2016. Yeah, so I think in 2016, there were 56,000 um, white people who died from an overdose, an opioid overdose. There were seven thousand black people. 
um, which is astonishing numbers, right? Um, the people who are dying. So it's a big problem. I think it's a problem that we haven't really talked about. We haven't really addressed. I think the perception is still that this is a, a white person's problem. Um, but you have large urban areas from, you know, DC to Detroit, um, even in Atlanta, where people are now choosing to 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 do these drugs, and it's no, and it's no longer a prescribing problem. It's a heroin, fentanyl, like a, a cut drug problem, um, and so I, I think. It's just a, it's an interesting issue, and I think um, it's something that we should continue to talk about because it's going to continue to be a problem. There's going to be, you're going to see money pushed towards this issue. You're going to see regulations. Um, there's already been tons of regulations on prescribing, um, but as this problem shifts from where it was created in doctors' offices to um, intervening on the street dealing with pain dealing with addiction um i think it's going to be really interesting in this in this next year how our government um decides to address it right and now that it's just not white people dying um african americans are dying other minority populations are dying um i'm hopeful that we won't see a replication of policies from the crack epidemic the crack era um, where addicts were thrown in jail for, you know, half of their lives, their, their, the rest of their lives often. Um, really harsh drug sentences for, for really the victims of, of the problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you that I don't think that will necessarily happen this time around. But I'm, I worry if, like, the face of the epidemic is mostly white, white, then will black people be ignored when they seek help or treatment? Or just, like, in, like how you said, there's going to be money pushed towards this issue. So when programs are developed, are they going to be targeted towards our community or relevant for our communities? Right, so. right. And if we don't know that it's an issue, then, you know, we can't advocate right. Uh, for the money to be to be placed in our communities, um, and it's crazy for the second year in a row. The um, what what is it? The death the age of death died. I mean, it dipped for the United States, um, mm-hmm. and they're saying it's mainly due to drug overdoses. Drug overdoses okay. surpassed heart disease as the number one killer of Americans. Oh wow! Yeah, it's for a huge. Really? Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a huge problem. So right now, for black black people are dying at the rate that white people were dying in two thousand fourteen, and it's still epidemic levels for black people. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a huge it's a huge problem. It's a problem that's not going to be solved in a year. This is a this is definitely a ten year, fifteen year, twenty year problem. Some people have even okay. called it the the hundred year problem. Yeah, I mean, because it is a cycle. Yeah, so I think it's important uh, moving forward, thinking about what's on the horizon in 2018, uh, specifically for opioid-related things, just to pay attention on kind of the language on and how the issue is represented. 
um, and whether we see the deaths of minority populations lifted up um, and how that narrative is painted. Um, also pay attention to the strategies that are pushed forward to, to solving this epidemic, um, whether they're top-down approaches or community-level approaches. I think those are those will be the things that you want to see. Um, I saw uh, Philadelphia's toying with the idea of opening essentially harm reduction centers where people can come and use use drugs yeah, safely, um, providing clean needles and all that type of stuff. And those are kind of the innovative solutions that are going to prevent people from dying um, and also maybe segues to get people into care. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, if you can go somewhere where you don't feel judged. Right. Yeah, you don't have to hide. You're not reusing yeah. the same needle, you know, risking mm-hmm. transmission of other other diseases. Um, right. It's just... An unsafe environment. Yeah. What are, what are some other things that we should be looking at in 2018? Uh, Obamacare. Um, what yeah. the Republicans are going to try to do with that. Um, there are some predictions that they're still going to try to attack it. And if even if they can't get rid of it completely, because that seems to have failed a few times, <laughs> they're going to, you know, just keep doing things to chip away at it, to mm-hmm. make it harder for people, to destabilize the marketplace, whatever they can. Um, so, I mean, that's unfortunate, but that's something we have to think about and mm-hmm. be aware of. And vote. Yeah, people definitely in, vote. People speak to that our was, interests. That was going to be my takeaway. Yeah, I think Bring in addition... That slogan, vote or die. Vote or die, right. Yeah, I think in, in addition to the Affordable Care Act, um, we had to pay attention to Medicare Medicaid, and um, there may be reductions in those things as well. Um, I think this administration really is trying to to remove the social safety net um and so we should pay attention to that but some good news is chip was reauthorized for six years praise so the, lord yeah. the kids can have some insurance yeah kids can have That's insurance community health centers have not received a reauthorization for funding yet though so hopefully oh what hopefully by the time <laughs> this podcast is posted that happens because that's i feel like that's been not published i mean i feel like chip not receiving like having that lapse in uh reauthorization wasn't big enough news but i think even more so like a lot of people don't know that um community health centers are kind of in that same boat and they're still in that same boat so wow yeah but um, as Paula, you and Mercy just mentioned about voting, midterms are in 2018, so that's something to... It's important year. Yeah. 468 seats that are up for election. All the seats. All the seats. So before we um, sign off, do we want to just kind of go and talk about what does Black Health have planned for this year? Man, we about to blow y'all mind, cause <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more content, more events, 
um, some key collaborations. More life. Holiday. More life, all of that. I think uh, I'm definitely That's excited great. for this year. Yeah. Um, it's lit. Consi- it's consistent, lit. consistent work. So, go educate, engage, and empower all of y'all. <laughs> no, yeah, we definitely have a, a big year ahead of us, and then going into 2019, an even bigger year. But you know, we'll save that mm-hmm. for later. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so thank you guys for listening. This concludes the show today. But if you like this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. We also love reading your comments and getting feedback. And check us out on all social media platforms at Black Health, B-L-K-H-L-T-H, and our website, blackhealth.com, where you can read our blog and shop our Black Health Matters tees and our other merch. And thanks for listening. Until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>